Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to to Micah chapter 5. We'll read the passage from 1 to 5, but I want us to especially focus on verse 2. I think it's on page 660 if you have a pew Bible in front of you. And when we're done, I would encourage you to leave your finger in Micah because we're going to go back and forth in that book. Micah 5, 1 to 5. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughter of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth from me to be the ruler in Israel, is going forth or from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has become a child, and the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel. And he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. I'm pretty sure that every generation has said something like, I'm not sure that we have ever lived in such difficult and challenging, maybe even evil times, and not wanting to break tradition with every other generation, I would like to begin by saying that today. I'm not sure that I have lived in such an evil time, such a difficult and challenging time as we are in right now. For example, if you listened either here or online two Sundays ago, Pastor Paul shared with us how the definition of social justice is being redefined, how the definition is going from equality and justice for all because we are all created in the image of God, to a more Marxist-based justice in which equality and justice is not the overarching goal, but rather the grasping of power for oppressed groups, who unfortunately could become the oppressors themselves. Then last week, our co-speaker Jojo gave a specific example of how this movement is being fleshed out. He said that the biblical definitions of sexuality are being rewritten so that whether you identify as a man or a woman is no longer a matter of the plumbing you were born with, but your feelings and to which gender you are most attracted. And he spoke about the so-called conversion therapy that he found so helpful in his own life now being branded and targeted as evil. That was Sunday. Then on Global News Monday night, the Liberal government laid out its four priorities that it wanted to accomplish 
before Parliament broke for the Christmas break. The fourth item being a total ban on this same so-called conversion therapy. If this ban is passed into law, it will mean that any of our pastors who have someone come to them and ask for help in dealing with their sexual feelings cannot give biblical counsel, nor refer to another one who would, or they could potentially have their credentials pulled, be fined or imprisoned if that's passed into law. And as a result, those of us who believe that God's design and ideas of social justice and sexuality are best are left asking today on this first Sunday of Advent, where is Jesus to be found in all of this? Where is Jesus in the new rewrite of social justice? That was Monday's news. On Tuesday, USA Today ran a report entitled The Waukesha Effect. A surge of weaponized vehicles plowing into crowds wreaks havoc on national safety. Parts of the article read, before the red SUV, which someone snapped a picture of here, smashed into a parade of marchers on Sunday in Waukesha, Wisconsin, the driver first plowed through barriers and raced past a police security post. As horrible as that incident sounds, the bizarreness of the vehicle assault is not altogether unusual. This incident left five, now six, dead, and 40, now 39, injured in a phenomenon that has become known as vehicle ramming. A Globe and Mail survey revealed at least 139 incidents where vehicles have been rammed into crowds of demonstrators that have taken place since George Floyd's death in May of 2020. Canadians should know this well. On June 6, 2020, in London, Ontario, 20-year-old Nathan Veltman intentionally jumped the curb with his truck, striking a Muslim family of five, ranging in age from 9 to 74, killing three generations of one family and sending the nine-year-old boy on the left-hand side of the picture to the hospital. He will grow up with no parents, no siblings, no grandparents. And just a peek at Veltman's computer established that the crime itself was motivated by racial hatred. To me, this was not only tragic, but ironic. Billions spent on gun control when pretty much any teenager with a learner's license has access to a set of keys and a car. Yeah, it's Advent. But where is Jesus to be found in the violence and the anger and the racially motivated hatred? As we enter Advent 2021, the season that speaks of a fresh coming close of Jesus to us, our thoughts may instead reflect the feelings of a Wordsworth poem set to music in a Christmas carol. With the background of the Civil War in his mind, Wordsworth wrote, 
And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Where do we find Jesus in Advent during times like these? Well, if you're struggling with what is happening today, if you find it difficult and are thoroughly appalled and troubled by the sin that is present in society, then you have a heart and eyes like Micah the prophet did. You know, at Christmas we like to read his prophecy in chapter 5, verse 2, because it's, it's kind of a pastoral picture. You know, Jesus coming to the quaint hamlet of Bethlehem, the Savior from the God of all the earth, coming to the smallest of places on it, but without knowing the context into which this prophecy was written, I would contend that we miss the power. We miss the promise of these words. But what I would like to consider together this morning is the original context, or at least some of it, into which the coming of Jesus was prophesied because therein is the real power. Therein is the real promise of this text. It's an advent hope for troubled times. Now, Michael lived in the last half of the 8th century BCE. He was kind of part of a a team of prophets who lived at this time, Isaiah being the most notable. Some have suggested that Micah may have even been a disciple of Isaiah because when you read each of their books, there are some sentences that are almost identical. Micah was a native of Morasheth, which was a foothills town about 30 kilometers west of Jerusalem on a maritime plain between the Judean hills and Philistia, which would be by the sea. And it was there that Micah first experienced the sin of society that would make you angry if you saw it happening. The area around Morasheth was well watered. It was a fertile land. And yet while the land was filled with productive grain fields and olive groves and rolling pasture, the farmers whom Micah had grown up with were in economic distress. Due to a number of unfortunate circumstances, the farmers had become debt-ridden, and in order to get out of that and keep operating, they were forced to mortgage their farms to rich men from Samaria and Jerusalem, ancient loan sharks, really, who greedily and through conniving dispossessed them of their land. These farmers ended up as tenants on the land they used to own, now owned by absentee landlords. Once owners of their own field, now they were no better than sharecroppers. And on God's behalf, Micah rails against an abundance of greed. He says in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, Woe to those who scheme iniquity, who work out evil on their beds, When morning comes, they do it, for it is in their power, the power of their hands to do it. 
They covet fields and seize them, and houses, and they take them away. They rob a man in his house and his inheritance. Verse 9 of chapter 2 continues. The women, probably widows, of my people, you evict each one from her pleasant house, from her children, you take my splendor forever. For Micah to see cruel loan sharks grabbing up farm after farm from your neighbors and friends, to realize that they were stealing the forever inheritance of the land promised by God to those you loved, to witness suddenly homeless widows with their children becoming bag ladies and beggars. It's enough to make your blood boil with righteous indignation and abundance of greed. And again, I'm not sure that greed is something that is really foreign to us. It just wears a whole bunch of different disguises. Like the owners of some of the shipping companies whom 60 Minutes reported last week are astronomically increasing the cost of their trans-Pacific routes, whereby a shipping container that used to cost $2,000 now costs 20, so that Maersk, the largest company in the world, made a profit of $10 billion last year, a 68% increase over the year before. Why are they doing it? Because they're greedy and because they can. But it's everyday consumers like you and me who are going to be hit by the increased prices. We are the ones who will pay the price of greed. And tragically, because of their greed and potentially others along the supply chain, more and more people are going to struggle to eat. More and more families are going to struggle to put food on the table and clothing on their children. An abundance of greed. Micah saw that. So do we. As Micah looked around him, he not only saw an abundance of greed, he also saw an absence of justice. In chapter 3, verse 9, Micah says, and notice how he targets the leaders. Now hear this, heads of the house of Jacob, rulers of the house of Israel, who abhor justice and twist everything that is straight, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with violent injustice. Her leaders pronounce judgment for a bribe. Her priests instruct for a price, her prophets divine for money. What Micah describes is a group of national, judicial, and religious leaders who only do what will line their pockets. If they could swing it politically and slip it through financially, they were thrilled. If you can get your family in on the payday, all the better. They would be like businessmen who artificially inflate the price of a stock and then sell it off before the price collapses on all the everyday schmucks like you and me who purchased it in good faith. 
twisting what ought to be straight in order to deceive the public and make a buck. It's probably true that judges in Micah's day exchanged favors, exchanging favorable ruling for financial kickbacks. All around him, he saw systemic injustice, corruption, cover-up, society ridden with political, financial, and, re and uh, religious rottenness to the core. And what made it worse, I would imagine, is that some of them were religious leaders. And so they were kind of waving at religion and claiming that God was condoning what they were doing. Verse 11 of chapter 3 says that at the very same time that they are deceiving and meeting out injustice, they were leaning on the Lord and saying, is not our God in our midst? Aren't we being blessed? Calamity will not come upon us. Because they had sprinkled their sin with holy water, they felt that God was smiling on them. And it is enough, whether speaking of Bethlehem and Judah or Calgary and Canada, to make us justifiably upset. As Micah gazed out over his society, he saw what we might see as we look at ours. Rampant greed, blatant injustice by those who should be leading with integrity. Now he saw and spoke to other issues as well, but there's only one other that I would like to draw to our attention, and it is this. Micah saw the deterioration of relationships, the disintegration of relationships in two forms. It took two forms. The first one is in chapter 7, verse 5. Do not trust your neighbor. Do not have confidence in a friend. From she who lies at your bosom, guard your lips. And what he is describing here is a disintegration of trust. He's saying you can't honestly share anything with anyone anymore. What you say can and will be used against you in the court of human opinion. Your most intimate and private thoughts will be posted online for all to see and hear and judge. And to make his point poignantly, notice how he increases the intensity of the relationship as the verse moves along. It's like he's got three concentric circles. He starts wide and he moves more narrow. Wide. He begins widely with someone who's just a neighbor. You don't normally talk to them, but you'll wave at them on the way to get the mail. He says, don't trust a neighbor. Yeah, I can understand that. Then he narrows the circle and says, do not have confidence or trust a friend. And you know a friend better than a neighbor. They're the kind of people that you would want to be able to share openly with. And he says, don't do it. You can't trust them. And finally he says, you cannot even trust your spouse. From she who lies in your bosom, guard your lips. Now it's hard to know whether Micah is exaggerating to make a point or whether this was really the, how bad it was. 
But his fundamental point is that trust has been broken in even the most intimate relationships back then. I would venture to say that in some ways, we're there again in different ways and for different reasons. I mean, who would have thought that COVID would so destroy relationships and so erode trust, right? It was difficult enough before the pandemic with increasing access to personal information, conspiracy theories all over the place, and cancel culture. But now you add to that suspicion, mistakes, misspeaks, pastors who are self-proclaimed martyrs, the polarization of society, and as a result, institutions the trust in institutions and the trust in individuals has disintegrated to a low that I have never seen in my almost 60 years of being around. And, and living in that, you feel so lost. How can you live authentically and share honestly when there's no level of trust in being able to believe that what you say is not going to end up online out of context or worse? And perhaps you have been stabbed in the back by someone close to you so that you feel that you can't trust anybody anymore because if, if I can't trust him or her, who on earth can I trust? Betrayal of trust makes you hold your cards close and keep your walls high. It keeps you from sharing with others. And in the end, it empties life of authenticity and joy. Micah saw the breakdown of the social fabric in his country seen in an all-encompassing inability to trust others. There's a second symptom of social breakdown that was taking place in Micah's day. Not only an all-encompassing inability to trust others, something else. I'll never forget... <laughs> a visit that we had from Mel's brother and his wife, Bonnie. They brought their two-year-old girl, niece, named Alexis, who's now probably 22. But I remember that visit like it was yesterday. Her mother, Bonnie, was in another room, and Alexis, my two-year-old niece, decides to call her mom. Bonnie, she goes, Bonnie! She comes in and says, Alexis, what do you call mommy? Bonnie. Just defiant. Alexis, what do you call mommy? Bonnie. And finally, she ended up in the corner staring at the wall until she finally submitted and called her mom, mommy. <laughs> and Bonnie let her out of the corner, and as she walked by me, she whispered, Bonnie. And it's in all of us to do that, isn't it? We've all caught our kids, or been caught by our parents, talking back and speaking disrespectfully to them. And as parents, I mean, we deal with that, don't we? In Micah's time, no one did. Either they couldn't or they didn't. 
So that in chapters, chapter 7, verse 6, listen to the interactions or what's going on within the family unit. Son treats father contemptuously. Daughter rises up against mother. Daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. A man's enemy are the men of his own household. So here we have sons who are treating their father with contempt, a snarl, roll of the eyes. Daughters thumb their noses at their mothers and do whatever they please anyway. And such disrespect on the part of the, the women that he describes here carried over into the adult life where the person would the, the wife would disrespect the mother-in-law who had raised her husband. Didn't like the way he was shaped and had no qualms about sharing that. No respect. Thankfully, we have never seen or heard any of this disrespect in our families before. So grateful it only happened in Micah's day, right? Perhaps his son called his father the old man, demanded the camel to go on a date, and when he was refused, took it anyway because his father didn't have the physical strength to stop him. Perhaps the daughter would mock her, her uh, mother's conservative dress standards and intentionally dress provocatively just to spite her. Perhaps they refused to acknowledge that they were being spoken to, were self-absorbed in their online life and likes. Mind you, I guess that's today. Um, strike that one from the picture. They swore at their parents, told them where to go and how to get there, left and came home whenever they pleased. And parents did or could do nothing. Thankfully, that only happened in Micah's time. He saw a disintegration of relationships shown in two things, an all-encompassing inability to trust others and rampant dishonor and disrespect of children for their parents. So as Micah was troubled over the sin of his hometown, Bethlehem and Jerusalem where he prophesied, I think it would have been easy for him to say to himself or out loud, get me out of here. I don't want to live in this anymore. I'm done. Sometimes I think we might just understand that. I mean, his world was so shaped by greed that honest and hardworking people were unfairly dispossessed of their land. Single moms and their children were kicked out of their houses by a rise in rental. Perhaps jobs were slashed to increase the profit of shareholders. A greedy world. In an unjust world where justice was for sale to the highest briber, where he who had the loudest voice and the largest bank account would win, I can understand why he would want out. Go live in the wilderness somewhere where you don't have to deal with this. Really, who could blame him? Who really wants to be invested in a society like this? A greedy world. An unjust world. A world in which the social fabric is being torn apart. I said, I don't know about you, but sometimes I look around and I feel that way. I long for a cabin 
in rural Montana, away from it all. Can I have a witness? Amen. I'm, whew, I'm glad I'm not alone. Just get away from it all. Fish, grow fruit, worship God. We would not be alone in our reaction, in our amens. We are not alone. In the fourth century, led by a man named Antonius, people led, left by droves. They left their society to go into the Egyptian wilderness and live there. We know them now as the desert mothers and fathers. Part of their reason for fleeing to the desert is because like the children of Israel and like Jesus, they wanted to encounter God there and thought that that was the place to do it. But the second compelling reason why they left is because they could no longer stand being around the sin of the culture. They felt so polluted by it that they felt they had to leave. So they separated themselves. And it makes all sorts of emotional, intellectual, and spiritual sense, doesn't it? These days, when you hear stories of murders and morons, it just makes you want to move out of society for a while. Now think about this. If our world is revolting to us, as sinful people ourselves, we can't even begin to imagine how repulsed God must have been then and now by it all. Then and now, this lemming-like charge towards the immoral and indecent, it's antithetical to the holiness of God, exactly opposite to who he is. God is gracious and giving, not greedy. He's absolutely just and righteous. He hates the systemic injustice of our culture. The trustworthiness of God stands in stark contrast to the deceit of the world. Christ's submission to his heavenly father in absolute opposite to our rebellion against parents. And as a result, it would make sense on so many levels for God not to want to have any part of our world whose sin is an offense to him and a rebellion against him. And yet here is the amazing and remarkable gospel part. That it was into this very context of rampant greed, blatant injustice, social disintegration that chapter 5 verse 2 was spoken. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. What an amazing promise from God. He promised to send a Messiah to the people of Judah into a sea of sin that would have sickened him. And the oppressed people, the sin-sick people, the trample and defeated people knew that these words, a Messiah, a Savior was being promised. Through the centuries, that promise kept their hearts warm. Through cold nights of suffering, brutality and alienation, they knew that God had promised them an eternal Messiah. 
who would save them and set things right. Folks, we have so many reasons to be appalled by sin around us and to want to withdraw from society because of them. We have many reasons to want out. God had every reason to stay out, but he did not. Instead, into a world of greed and injustice and social disintegration, God announced that his Messiah would be born. Jesus coming into that kind of a world. And man, I'm so grateful for that. That Jesus' birth was promised in the midst of rampant sinfulness. Because if God had waited for a perfect world, a world that we might like, we would have no hope. When God looked down and saw the sinfulness of Judah, he didn't want to get away. Instead, he promised that he would come even closer to them in the presence of a Messiah who would come to redeem that sinful world and save a sinning people. So that according to Micah's prophecy, in its context, if you want to see where Christ is at Christmas, Look at the evil of the world because Christ is there suffering with us and working hard to bring us even closer to God. Elie Wiesel, you may know, was a Nobel Prize winner, Jewish survivor of the Holocaust, author of a powerful book named Night. In that book, he tells the story of when he was in a concentration camp and was compelled, along with others, to witness the hanging of two Jewish men and one Jewish boy. The two men, because of their weight, died instantly as their necks snapped. But the dying of the young lad became protracted because he was so light. He struggled for half an hour on the gallows, and somebody behind Vitel was heard to mutter, where is God? Where is he? And the voice ground out again, where is he? Vitel said that he too felt the question irrepressibly spring from within him, where is God? Where is he? And he writes that a voice softly within himself said, he is hanging there on the gallows. Theologian, theologian Jürgen Moltmann said that any answer other than that would have been blasphemy. For it is in the darkness where we most need to know of his love that he is closest to us, suffering with us, and working to bring us even closer to God. So where do we look for Jesus in this season of Advent, in this world that we might prefer to escape from? We look into the very places of evil, knowing that Jesus is present even there, suffering with us, 
and working to bring us even closer to God. Let's pray. Our Father, your promise of your Messiah was not first intended to adorn the covers of Christmas cards or the songbooks for the carols of the season. Rather, it was intended to give hope to the hurting and broken, the sin-sick and lowly, those who have been chewed up and spit out by the violence of sin, who have had relationships torn apart. And we are so grateful for that because it means that Jesus has come as a Messiah for us too. And we beg him to come ever closer to us during this season of Advent. Jesus, we ask that you would incline your ears to this song that we sing as an invitation and petition for your help today. For it is in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.